All right, so we're just going to jump in. Uh, we're going to go through four points today. Uh, the first point is idolatry of the self. The second point is idolatry of our nation. The third point is uh, idolatry of comfort. And then the last point we'll look at is God, who is worthy of our worship, no matter the cost. In the very first verses, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is building this statue. So at the end of chapter 2, and he did this at the end of chapter 1 too, he acknowledges that, that the God of the Israelites is present, that he exists, that he is powerful, but in all of these chapters, he fails to actually submit. We see Nebuchadnezzar is building this statue to, to bring honor to himself and to bring honor to Babylon. Uh, the height of this statue was 60 cubits, and the breadth or the width was 6 cubits. A cubit is 18 inches so as I was prepping, I just did some quick math. I did have to bust out my calculator. Um, I know many of you may not have had to, but we find out that the, the statue is 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. If you have ever been lucky enough to go to Italy, my wife and I did before we had kids, we were able to go to Italy. We went and saw the, uh, the David. And when you walk in the room, you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize this thing was so big. It commands the whole room. You're looking at it. It's, it's incredible. The, the, the David is only 17 feet tall. Uh, I'm sure many people have been to the Lincoln Memorial. The Lincoln Memorial is 19 feet tall. Uh, if you've gone to the Great Wall of China, that's 26 feet tall. The White House is 70 feet tall. And probably the, most, uh, the best representation of how tall and, and magnificent this statue was is I've never been here. I'd love to go one day. The Christ Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro is uh, 98 feet tall, and this statue is 90 feet tall. So if you can picture that statue, if you saw it during the Olympics a few years back, it's also put on the plain of Dira. We've, this was most likely three miles southeast of Babylon. And what's actually cool, as I was researching and just looking this up, uh, there have been archaeological digs in, in this area that they think this statue may have been put. And they, they've actually found remnants of a base of a very large image or statue that was constructed at some point during the Babylonian time period. Now, just side tangent here. I don't think that our faith in God should be contingent on like archaeological digs and scientific proofs. And it should be contingent on uh, the grace that we receive through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Our faith should being God, but it is encouraging to see as Christians kind of the rest of the world catching up with what the Bible has already told us. Um, it was so we've read about this area before. If you, if you flip back to Genesis 11, you'll read about the land of Shinar, and this generally was a, a referred to where Babylon was. Um, and in Genesis 11, verse 2, we read that as people migrated from the east, they found a plain, a plain in the land of uh, Shinar. Uh, when I was finishing up prepping, I just listened to a quick sermon on Daniel chapter 3 by Alistair Begg to make sure I didn't miss anything. And he also brought this up. And he tells us that in this spot, it is most likely the exact same place where, where Nebuchadnezzar built this statue is the same place that the people from the east built the Tower of Babel. How fitting that this physical manifestation of Nebuchadnezzar's pride and his, this idolatry of himself is the same spot that people proclaimed, let us make a name for ourselves and build a great tower. 
It's just interesting. Anyways, this statue that Nebuchadnezzar built is a very impressive feat, especially in ancient times. To be able to construct something of this magnitude is impressive. So why? Why did Nebuchadnezzar build it? Well, it wasn't the same motivation that the Quinn dynasty had when they built and finished the Great Wall of China, right? This was to protect their nation. This statue had no militaristic advantage for Babylon. It wasn't the same motivation that the Romans had when they constructed nearly 220 miles of pipes and aqueducts to be one of the first nations to have running water. That was a civil advancement, and this was not that. And it definitely wasn't a diplomatic, a a peacekeeping um, mission like France had with the United States when they gifted us the Statue of Liberty. This was 100% a physical manifestation of Nebuchadnezzar's pride, his boastfulness. There, There definitely were strategic intentions behind it. If you know anything about Babylon, if you read about Babylon, Babylon was a nation that would take over other nations and instead of just enslaving all of their people, they would bring the best and the brightest of that nation and they would indoctrinate them. What, they're, what they did with Israel is no different than what they have done with other nations all surrounding Babylon that they conquered. And they would bring in the best and the brightest. They would indoctrinate them in the culture. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted all of these nations, right? We read that in the scripture. All nations bowed to this. They, he wanted them to bow to one singular object. Ultimately, they, he wanted them to bow to him. So this image is absolutely an expression of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. It was an idolatry. It was idolatry of himself. And we read through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, the consequences and chapter 4, we'll, we'll get into that too, of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. One of the first things we see through chapter 1, 2, and 3 is his pride led to very evil actions. He acted in very sinister ways. In chapter 1, he raids the temple of the Lord, desecrating the place where God was supposed to dwell. In chapter 2, he murders, he, he, he wants to murder all of the wise men of his country because they can't interpret a dream. He has a dream, he says... Tell me what my dream is. Tell me the interpretation. Ah, I don't know, Nebuchadnezzar. This is a tough one. All right, you're going to die. <laughs> it's, it's because of his pride. He was losing sleep. He's angry that people can't solve it for him. And this pride, this idolatry of himself, led him to kill or try to kill the wisest people in his country. In chapter 3, we see him make this fiery furnace. If you do not bow to me... If you do not submit yourselves to me, right, Nebuchadnezzar, you are going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, side note, if I call Abednego Benny at any point, it's because VeggieTales is ingrained in my head. All right? So I just want to say that. I was prepping this morning and I was reading it and I'm pretty sure I called him Benny like five times. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they do not bow, they're brought in front of Nebuchadnezzar. And when they say to his face, we still will not bow, he makes this furnace seven times hotter, killing his own people, his own people that helped him and assisted him build this statue and make this furnace. It's made seven times hotter because of his rage and they die. 
He's not the only one to have evil actions come from their pride. We read about in, in verse 8, the certain Chaldeans, right? So the Chaldeans were Babylonian, right? Babylonian is this multi-ethnic, diverse nation, and the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. They're the, the uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Um, they are Babylonian, right? They're not brought in from another country. And so these certain Chaldeans come forward and they maliciously accuse the Jews. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow to this idol, Nebuchadnezzar finds out because there was a group of certain Chaldeans who bring them to Nebuchadnezzar to be thrown in the furnace. Now this is absolutely motivated by pride. We'll later read that they know they know who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. They know that they are high-ranking officials in Babylon, in this Babylonian nation. And, and it's very possible they're infuriated or jealous or, or prideful that they don't have that status. And so they bring them to Nebuchadnezzar. The point I'm trying to make is that if we idolize ourselves, if we let our pride take over, then it is going to lead to us acting in evil ways. However, this isn't the greatest consequence of our idolatry of ourselves. Nebuchadnezzar's pride gave him an inability to submit to God. We see this again in Daniel 1, 2, 3, and then we'll talk about Daniel 4. I know we haven't got there yet, but in Daniel 1, Nebuchadnezzar sees the benefit of God's commands, but he just wants the benefit. He refuses to submit. Daniel and his friends come stronger and wiser and, and tougher than all the, other, uh, wise, all the other people that were brought in, the Chaldeans, because they submitted to God's law. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, I want that. So we're going to go on that plan. He follows commands of God that are beneficial, but he doesn't submit to God. In Daniel chapter 2, we see Nebuchadnezzar pay lip service to God. The dream is revealed to him. God helped him out, right? He was trying to figure out what this dream meant. He was losing sleep. This king that rules over an entire nation, the largest nation, couldn't even find rest. And God gives him the answer to this dream and allows him to find rest. So he praises God. We read him say in in Daniel 2, 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. He acknowledges God because God helped him out, but his actions still have not changed. We know this because in chapter 3, right in the beginning of chapter 3, we see him constructing this idol for his own worship, not for God's. In chapter 3, at the end of it, Nebuchadnezzar is inclusive with God rather than exclusive with God. We'll find out later, if if you're not familiar with this chapter, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace and they're saved. And Nebuchadnezzar again acknowledges, wow, God is powerful, your God is awesome. And anyone that curses the God of the Israelites will be put to death. He includes God into this litany of gods that you worship in Babylon, but he hasn't made God exclusive. And then finally, in Daniel 4, He's fallen back into his prideful ways. He has another dream. Daniel interprets this dream. And after this interpretation, 
Nebuchadnezzar is out walking in Babylon. He's up on the city walls and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built for my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. In Daniel 4, he has stepped back into these prideful ways and he loses everything. He goes crazy for seven years. Now, he's eventually restored, and and we'll get to that next time we're in Daniel 4, but our pride can have these similar consequences. If we refuse to deal with this idolatry of ourselves, we may act in evil ways. Just trade murdering our... (laughs) no No one's out here trying to murder the wisest people of our country. At least I hope no one in this room is. But just trade murder for hatred. Someone crossed me. I, I deserved this. My boss should have done this for me. And this guy disrespected me. Just, just trade murder for hatred. We might see the benefit of following God in certain areas of our life, but we don't actually submit to him. We follow God for a benefit, not for his glory and his majesty. We might pay lip service to God. We are in a tough situation. We get out of it. I praise you, God. And But really, it's just lip service, and there actually was never a heart change. There was never an internal change. That's because we can't get over ourselves. We might be inclusive rather than exclusive. We see this in our culture, right? In in, in the United States, it's okay to be a Christian as long as it falls into the branch of Christianity that's acceptable. And as long as you accept all the... uh, There's this idea of open theology, even, even amongst people that call themselves Christians, that... God is revealed in Christianity, but he's also revealed in Islam, and he's also revealed in Judaism, and he's also revealed through science. And, but the thing is, there is truth in the world. No, ma- no, matter what, no matter what you think, no matter what you agree with, there's truth. And the fact is that all of these different religions contradict with each other. So one of them has to be true. But our pride wants to just take the good things from everything and, and mesh it all and, and coexist. And then finally, we too, like Nebuchadnezzar, can lose everything. It's just our loss of everything is eternal. Nebuchadnezzar's was for seven years. See, Nebuchadnezzar's pride and idolatry is this historical example of how our pride can be detrimental to our faith, how it can flow into our actions. However, that's not the only idolatry that we are warned about in this section. Another example that we must be weary of is the idolatry of our nation. At at our church, we believe that the Bible is inerrant, that the Bible, that these historical passages are literal, that that they actually happened. And so if you believe that, anyone that's involved in this passage is created by God, right? These are eternal beings. Their soul is going to live on everybody that's involved. So even if they're not explicitly named, there are people that, are, that played a role in this passage. You think of the people that helped construct the idol. You think of the people that helped build the furnace. You think of the people that bound Daniel, tied them up and threw them into the furnace. Many of these people may have done this out of fear for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is definitely someone you should be afraid of. But many of them may have been like the certain Chaldeans, these Babylonians that are bought into their nation and are doing these evil things simply because it's the Babylon way or, or, or Babylon's doing it. They've submitted to their nation rather than submitting to God. 
we, we've seen this throughout history. One of the most obvious examples is uh, Germany during World War II. If you don't know, after World War I, Germany was just, just destroyed with sanctions, with uh, punishments. The Rhineland, which is, the Rhineland was like their industrial area, was taken from them. Uh, different parts of the country was divided up. They were given economic sanctions. Their milit- they weren't allowed to have a military over like, I think 100,000 people or something like that. Germany was destroyed after World War, World War I. The people were starving. They were dying. Inflation was, ins- was, was crazy. There's pictures. I remember in my history textbook seeing a picture of a little boy with a wheelbarrow load full of money. And he was trying to buy bread with it. That's how bad inflation was. And then along came this dude named Hitler. And he prom- he's charismatic. He promises a restored sense of nationalism. He promises... Um, this Aryan reign, this Germany is back as a world play, power and player, and the people buy into that. They love that. They, they love this renewed sense of nationalism that Hitler is offering. The problem is, they were so bought in, they idolized Hitler and, and German resurgence so much that people became complicit and aided in genocide. They bought into these beliefs that should never have bought, been bought into. It's no different. I mean, it's a little different, but the theme is no different in America. If we are bought into America over God, we too have the, we are submitting to what America does, not what God does. We too could fall into sinful ways for the namesake of our country. Listen, I, I love America. I love the country that I'm born in. I'm not trying to say anything like that. What I am saying is that if our idolatry, if our identity, if our hope is rooted in our nation, then our soul is going to be dictated by our hope as well. America is going to die. America is going to end. I hate to break it to you. I'm a history teacher. I'm teaching ancient history right now. The people living in the apex of Rome never thought Rome would end. One way or the other, America will end. It will die. Christ has beat death. Put your hope in Christ, not your nation. But we can replace country, this, this country, with any entity. Uh, whether it's your company or job, whether it's your family, maybe it's your denomination. Listen, maybe it's your, maybe it's your sports team. In, in our country, we live in, 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 in a nation where people faithfully attend a gathering every single Sunday. It's just not the church. It's an NFL stadium. Like, this is a real temptation for people. I, if you get to know me and you spend any more than 30 minutes with me, you'll learn that I love the NBA. But we can't allow our love for sports to be our identity, dictate our moods, dictate who we are. And that, that's a real temptation. Our families can be a temptation. Our jobs can be a temptation. Listen, enjoy being an American. Let's work hard and diligently at our jobs, love and lead our families, and enjoy the beauty of creation that God reveals through sports. Just don't allow them to become with our idols. We might not be aiding genocide, but we will compromise in sinful ways. A third form of idolatry that we see in this passage 
is the idolatry of comfort. I'm going to read 6 and 7, and we're going to talk about it. So if you want to look at 6 and 7. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, that word therefore is important. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all peoples, all nations, and and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. That word, therefore, is important. It says, if you do not bow, you'll be thrown into a fire. Therefore, people bowed. It wasn't necessarily, not for everybody, the majesty of this giant golden image. It says people from every nation, every tribe, every language were there. The people bowed because they did not want to be thrown into a fiery furnace. I, I get it. I'm not you're saying that I don't get that. I get that. I wouldn't want to be thrown into a fiery furnace either. And this might be a little bit extreme, but at, at the root of that, people bowed because they didn't want to die. They didn't want to lose their life. They didn't want to lose their comfort. I think any time in the church when we critique this comfortable American culture, we jump right to, well, maybe you're called to go overseas and be a missionary and, and serve. And maybe you're called to be a missionary in Ukraine right now. Get up, go. You're living your comfortable American life. And what I say to that is maybe. Maybe you are. Maybe you are called to go drop the life that we have in America and become a missionary. Pray about it. Search the scriptures. Ask God for conviction. But maybe it's as simple as hopping on Route 3 and driving 15 minutes down the road to Linden and sharing the gospel in a place that makes you uncomfortable. Maybe it's driving across Columbus to the west side of Hilltop that's run rampant with drugs and sharing the gospel with people who need it. Over on Parsons by Children's. In our community group, we've been going through a godly view of social justice. Now, I know there's a lot that has been thrown in with that term now. I'm not here to... (laughs) to say buy into everything the media or America tells us about social justice. That's a conversation for a different time. But what we can't ignore as Christians is we are called, we are called to love the people that are less fortunate than us, that are different than us, the widows, the poor. And if we are throwing that out because we're throwing out the, because we're critical of the social justice that has been defined in in this new American age, if we just throw it all out, we're not reading our Bibles. It's okay, and we should go to places that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable to share the gospel and serve there. But maybe for you, it's sharing the gospel with your millionaire CEO at work or your coworker at work or your family. Whatever it is, don't serve the idol of comfort. Maybe it's service in the church. Maybe it's going to church. Maybe you're here and you have had bad instances or your your past church experience has been terrible. What I'd say is the church is built up of a lot of people that have problems idolizing different things. 
And we all need Christ. So please don't throw out church just because you've had a bad experience. Go to church. Find a church that preaches the gospel. Get involved. Don't serve an idol of comfort and stay away just because it's comfortable. See, people of all nations bowed to this golden image. It wasn't, be because, it wasn't because of the image itself. It was because of the cost. If we bow to an idol of comfort, that will end up leading us to bow to many other idols. If we first bow to this idol of comfort, we idealize our comfort, we will bow to many other idols to keep our comfort. The warnings against idolatry are great. We see them in this text, but it's not the main point. We can't stop there. Daniel, when he writes this, doesn't stop there. The most important part of this passage is who is worthy of our worship? And how do we keep ourselves from idolatry? The answer is God. I'm going to give you the answer right now. I'm not trying to hide it from you. The answer is God, revealed through Christ and through his Holy Spirit. But how do we get there? And when we do submit to that, it doesn't come without a cost. But the promises that God offers are greater. So let's take a look at how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond when they're told to bow. We're going to read verses 8 through 15. And then uh, we're going to talk about it. So if you want to turn to that. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, certain Jews whom you have appointed over the fairs of your prophets of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, sorry, there are certain Jews. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They know God's commandments. They know that they are not supposed to bow down to idols. These three would have known the law well. And they put their faith in that. Their faith in God trumps their fear of the furnace. But what does that mean? What does it mean? We hear that all the time. Put your faith in God. Just put your faith in God. What does that actually mean? Well, one, it means accepting what Christ did for you on the cross. We're going to talk about that. But it all... It also means acknowledging that God is the creator. God is the creator of everything. When we acknowledge that God is the creator, it puts death to this idolatry of self. How are we going to idolize ourselves 
when we submit to the fact that God has created and has control over everything. They understood that God was sovereign. That's going to put death to our idolatry of a nation. You've got our nation, this, this thing, for lack of a better word, and then this thing that's above it, God. And I'm not going to submit to this thing if this thing is in control of it, right? I'm, I'm going to submit to this because God is in control. He's sovereign. And they knew that. And that puts a death to submitting to your nation or your company or your, your family or your sports team. <laughs> and then they also knew that God was present and active. God didn't create it and then step back. Daniel and, or, sorry, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that God was present and active. This puts a death to the idolatry of our comfort. When God calls us to step out into things that are uncomfortable, we know that God is with us. He's not away, he's with us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood who God was. Their faith was in God, and because of that, they did not bow when they faced this fiery furnace. Even when they were brought in front of Nebuchadnezzar, they still do not bow. Their response to to Nebuchadnezzar shows us that they understand God is also a God who can deliver. Let's read 16 and 17. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trust that God can deliver them. And in fact, God does deliver them. Let's read 23 through 27. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up with haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king, He answered and said, But I see four men abound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and kings, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have faith that God can deliver them, and God does deliver them. Listen, if our faith is in God, it's going to uproot our idols. As our idols are uprooted, we're going to live radically for Christ. And when we live radically for Christ, we will face persecution. And we know that God can deliver us from that persecution. God is a God of deliverance. We see this throughout the entire Old Testament. We see it more clearly in the New Testament. When people are faced with trials... God does deliver, but he doesn't always deliver us now. We don't always experience the same deliverance that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced from the furnace.
However, it's encouraging to know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that. They didn't know exactly what this later deliverance would look like. They didn't know it was going to come in the form of Christ paying for our sins, but they had hope in a future deliverance. We know this because in verse 18 they say, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I'm not here to preach this idea of a prosperity gospel. If you follow God, you will always be delivered from your trials. You won't have any trials. You won't have any struggles. You won't have pain. You'll be blessed with finances and resources and, and all of these things. Maybe you will. Like may, Maybe following God will lead to many of these blessings. But that's not the promise. My head, obviously, if you know me, if you don't know me, my head goes to my daughter, Rosie. My wife and I last year had a, had a, a child. Uh, we have two kids, and Rosie is our second, and she... Uh, how did the doctor describe it? Um, we're not sure. <laughs> That's what we hear. I don't know. <laughs> Rosie was born and her brain's not working right. She can't swallow. She's a trach and a G-tube. Doesn't see right, doesn't hear right, uh, doesn't move right. Her body's very tense. She's, she is not at all healthy. Not at all. And it's probably not going to change. Outside of a miracle by God, it is probably not changing. But that deliverance, Rosie's going to be delivered. It's just probably not going to happen here. It's going to happen when she dies. She is made new in Christ. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that. And I know many people here know that. Rosie's not the only one walking through, through chronic illness in our church. Rosie's not the only one walking through a trial in our church. There's many people in this church who are walking through trials. And I encourage you that while this fire may not seem like it's being put out, it's already been dealt with. God can still deliver us here on earth, but it's already been dealt with through Christ. Again, as I was finishing up yesterday, I was listening to that sermon by Begg, and uh, he points, he, he, he phrases this. It's always nice when you have a point in your sermon and then a pastor you really, really respect says something similar. Just a side note. Um, <laughs> not to toot my own horn. Idolatry of the self. No, I'm just kidding. Um, sorry. Begg points out, that Christians sometimes think obedience to Jesus means you skip the fire. That you don't face the rain. Yet in Romans 8, it says, in all these things, we are conquerors. In them. In the trials. In the fire. God meets Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. They didn't skip the fire. They were in it. And that's where God was with them. Whether you think it's the incarnate Jesus or an angel or whatever that is. It's not important. What's important is that God met them in the fire. If you spend time in Psalms, you'll see this. David is not writing these Psalms because he has escaped. He's writing these Psalms because he knows he needs God with him in the fire. Daniel is filled with stories of people who need deliverance. They seek God and they receive deliverance. Where we are, we are filled with people who need deliverance and we have deliverance. We've seen the deliverance. We just have to submit to that. Listen, we've all broken God's law. Every single one of us has broken God's commands and we will continue to break God's commands unless there is this intervention by Christ. Christ. 
It's not, it's not like, like without Christ, we break God's commands and we continue to tell God, we don't want you. We get away from us, God. We want to do it this way. And God is over here saying, I sent my son. He dealt with this. Just accept that. And we're saying, no, I don't want you. What I'm telling you is stop doing that. Submit to the deliverance that God has already given us. You'll face trials here. I promise you that. But ultimately, you are delivered from the greatest trial that you could ever experience. There's a much more horrific fire coming. This fire in Daniel is seven times hotter. Without God, they would have fallen and died. We read that the people who brought them up to the fire died just by getting close to it. There is a fire that's coming that is never going to be quenched. And if you are telling God, I don't want you, you're the only other place you can walk is into the fire. So please acknowledge that God sent Christ. Acknowledge that Christ came and lived a perfect and righteous life. He paid the penalty. Listen, we live in this culture right now that cries for justice all the time. All the time. We acknowledge the need. When you break a law, there needs to be justice. We acknowledge that. We have broken God's law. We deserve justice. In fact, we freely walk into the punishment when we reject God. But if you don't reject God, he has dealt with that punishment. Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died. He tasted the punishment death. He, ta- he, he took that death so we wouldn't have to experience it, and all you have to do is put your faith in Christ. Matthew sixteen twenty four through 27 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Do not avoid your don't avoid the fire by submitting to your idols now to experience a fire that never ends. Christ is coming, and I pray and I hope that you are found in Christ when he does come. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you, God, thank you that you sent your son to deal with the fire. God, as we wrap up today, I pray that if there is anyone here who is not a Christian, they would submit to you that they would acknowledge they need you, that they would acknowledge they are walking away from you and that they would take Christ and they would walk with you. God, I pray for the Christians in the room who have struggled with submitting to things other than you. I pray that you would be gracious, that your spirit would work, that those idols would be uprooted. God, I pray for the people that are walking through a fire they may have never expected to walk through. Lord, meet them. 
Let them know that you are in it with them. God, we pray for deliverance. We pray for the deliverance from the earthly fires. God, we pray for deliverance for Ukraine. We pray for the Ukrainian people that are walking through something unimaginable, something we can't even fathom here in our country. But God, ultimately, we pray that everyone would bow, that we would submit to you. Love you, Lord. Amen.